2006, November 7th. Today is Lecture 32, The Origin of the Solar System, which will begin in just a moment. So a reminder that homework number four is out. Uh, there's copies of the homework and the bubble sheets up on the end of the table. And of course, uh, another reminder is that Friday there is no class because Friday is the observance of Veterans Day. Now, how many of you know why Veterans Day is celebrated? Actually, Veterans Day is November 11th. How many of you know why it's November 11th? Yes, sir. That's when World War I ended. That's correct. Very good. At least one history buff in the audience. World War I ended on the 11th. AM on November the 11th, 1918. Now, in the United States, we don't really mark um, World War I quite as much because the United States made a late entry into the war. Now, why am I saying this? Well, it turns out one of our, uh, as I mentioned a couple times, the, um, we have various listeners to these, these podcast recordings that I make of the lectures, which most of you see as a study tool, but some people have been using them as a way to learn astronomy. There's a lot of lifelong learners out there who, you know, I always wanted to take an astronomy class, and by listening to the podcast, they get to do that. And one of my um, longtime fans, if you will, is a man named Douglas Sylvester. He's a, a retired uh, air traffic controller up in Ottawa, Canada. Douglas sent me this wonderful picture, um, which I want to show you today, if it will not do something really silly. There, that's better. Come on. There. Applications of astronomy to architecture. All right, we know the Maya and the Egyptian align their buildings on astronomical, stop that, grounds. Project likes to do that little blip. There's a particular, for those of you who have studied art and architecture, may know of a structure known as an oculus. If you've ever seen the Pantheon in Rome or the Pantheon in, in Paris, there is a window at the very top of the dome that allows sunlight to come into the room. And often it's arranged in such a way to light the interior of the building. But an oculus, more generally, is basically any kind of window opening that allows in sunlight. This is from the Canadian War Museum up in Ottawa. It's a relatively recent uh, construction. The architects put a window, an oculus, set up where the building alignment is such that at 11 a.m. on November the 11th, it illuminates this tombstone of the unknown soldier from the First World War in the memorial room. Absolutely remarkable piece of architecture using the alignment of the sun. It's a basic calculation of some nice notes that came with this, this note that Douglas sent me, showing how the architects had basically gone through the calculation, both in 3D and 2D, to align the building. So here's an example of where someone has wanted a particular effect, and they rely on the predictability of the motion of the sun to be able to pull off this little trick. And there's lots of ways this is done. There's something referred to often as the architect's secret. Any of you have ever heard the term architect's secret, and no, you don't know, they don't have to kill you if you know the secret, or maybe they did in the pyramids, is architects would often hide some feature in their buildings. And this goes back to the pyramids when the architect's secret were actually the alignments of various shafts with respect to stars and the sun. So you know, astronomy has applications often that go quite beyond the, the sort of scientific applications and can often produce some, some very interesting results here. And I thank Douglas for showing this to me. There's not very many examples that I know of in modern architecture where someone's really bothered to pay attention to the sun. People do that in smart homes, you know, that want to use solar heating. But I thought this was done in a remarkably effective way, the use of astronomy. So just that little tidbit there for... Remind you of the reason for the, the holiday on Friday is, is in the United States it's usually is Veterans Day, but in, in Canada and other places, especially in the Commonwealth, and those are the countries that bore the brunt of the First World War, it's referred to as Remembrance Day or sometimes known as Armistice Day, which was when the armistice was, was declared in the First World War. Well, back to astronomy. Yesterday, 
we did a, a, a quick tour of the solar system. We saw the solar system from the inside out, surveyed its contents, and basically laid all the groundwork for a lot of the lectures that are going to come over in the next few weeks. One of the things we saw in that is that there's a lot of clues in the current state of the solar system for how the solar system formed. Now, a lot of books and a lot of approaches will take to, to teaching the solar system will just simply go through the litany of the planets and the moons and all the comets and asteroids. And then at the very end, talk about, okay, now where did it all come from? What I like to do is I like to invert that process. I, I don't remember if your book does this or not, but I, I'll do it. Um, where I want to talk about, jump, jump over all of that, and talk about what we know or what we've come to know about the origin of the solar system, both from studying other systems and the progress of forming and clues in our own, and use this as a way of motivating when we now go into the detailed tour of the solar system, be looking for the signposts of that history in the, in the properties of the planets. So rather than being just a dry litany of, you know, Jupiter is so big and so massive, we really want to see, well, why, we already have some context for why Jupiter should have those properties. So we're going to jump ahead of topics a bit. We're going to start out our exploration of the solar system by going back to the beginning, going back to the origins of the solar system. So the key ideas today are as follows. The present day properties of our solar system hold very important clues to its origin. Its history is written in its properties. We will start out with the idea that the sun, was, sun and the solar system formed out of a common structure known as the primordial solar nebula. This is something that was formed as part of the process of the sun's formation, and more generically, we can discuss this in terms of star formation. And it leads to the, this basically, it's a cold molecular disk of gas and stuff that begins to cool off, and as it cools out, grains and ices begin to condense out of this gas, and they form the raw solid materials out of which the planets are built. Now this process that I'm going to describe is, is pretty well known in outline, although specific predictions are a little bit tricky still because it's a fairly complicated um, idea, set of ideas. So I can't give exact calculations. It's still a lot of ongoing work, but the basic picture is as follows. We go from this sort of cold gas and grain to slowly aggregating from smaller structures up to larger structures, which we'll call the processes from planetesimals up to planets. We're going to see how the small grains aggregate into planetesimals, these planetesimals begin to aggregate into planets, and then finally we'll look at the differences in the formation between the terrestrial and the Jovian planets. The fact that the inner planets are rocky and the outer four planets are gas-rich, mostly hydrogen and helium, is not just simply random chance. You don't expect to find a mix of these things together. There's a real reason why there's this segregation of types among the solar system, and that should become clear as we get down through most of this lecture today. So today's question is one of origins. Where did the solar system come from? How did it form? And how do its present day properties tell us how it came about? And we have lots of clues. Let's look back at some of the clues that we have in the data of the solar system for how the solar system might have formed. The first of these we've already met yesterday, and I'll just simply repeat it. If we look at the major, the, 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 the eight big planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, they all orbit in, a, in a nearly the same plane. They're within a few degrees of the ecliptic. The largest distance they ever get in terms of tilt from the ecliptic is seven degrees. That's the orbit of Mercury. But all of them sort of lie within just a few degrees of that plane. They all know about sort of this general plane. And as we saw in a picture I showed yesterday, the solar system looks pretty flat from the outside. It's really flat and thin. Now, the second thing we notice is not only do they share the same plane, but all those orbits are very nearly circular. Not exactly. We know that Mars is elliptical. Mercury's got the most elliptical of the eight planets. 
But a lot of it really is not that elliptical. Remember when we talked about Mars and we talked about Kepler and I showed the difference between Mars is simply an offset circle and Mars is the actual ellipse of its orbit, we could barely see the squashing of the circle from the true circle on the screen in pixels. It was only a couple of pixels up on this big projector screen. And yet that's a pretty elliptical planet. The orbits are pretty round. Why is that? Why are they nearly circular? The third clue is that the planets and the asteroids, for the most part, tend to orbit in the same general direction. They all tend to move, if you take the direction of the motion of the Earth, for example, and use that in the right-hand rule to define up, and then you go to each of the individual planets, you all find they're also orbiting in this general clockwise right-hand rule sense defined by the motion of the Earth. Furthermore, that general right-hand counterclockwise sense is the same sense of direction of the rotation of the sun. So I've got orbits for all the planets and the rotation of the sun, and they know something about a common rotation, a common axis around which there's circular motion. So the mo orbital motions of the planets bear some remembrance of their initial formation. They all share something in common. We call that basically a kinematical memory, if you will. There's a further clue if I look in detail at the rotation of the individual planets and the sun. Okay, the first of these is that the axes of the planet's rotation are aligned but not exactly with the sense of orbit of the planet. So for example, the Earth. The Earth has an orbital axis which is tilted by 23 and a half degrees, but it, it rotates around that axis in a right-hand sense every 24 hours. That's the same right-hand counterclockwise sense that it orbits around the sun. And we see this for the most part, not always, recapitulated among most of the planets. There are notable exceptions, however, as we'll see here in just a moment. A couple planets actually don't follow this. But for the by and large, it's a general trend that's true. Now, the, and the third and the final portion, of course, is that the sun itself is rotating. It has a fairly slow rotation, and it's in exactly the same direction as the, as the planet's orbit. So it's as if all the planets are remembering a general right-hand sense of circulation in the material out of which they were formed. And we kind of expect that because rotational motion and angular motion to a first approximation should always be conserved. Now, there are cases when they don't in the presence of external tides and external torques, but for the most part, if you set something spinning, it will stay spinning unless some external force acts upon it. It's kind of a corollary of, of Newton's second law applied to rotating bodies instead of just simply moving bodies. So some memory is in here. Now, this point about rotation here is shown by this, this cartoon in which I've drawn the, the eight major planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and shown the direction of their, of their axis, and in blue, I've shown the direction of rotation. So the, the up axis is the one with the little loop-de-loop, -loop showing the sense of, of a rotation. Mercury is nearly perfectly aligned with its orbit. It's about 0.1 degree from misaligned. It's almost exactly perpendicular to its orbital plane. Venus, Venus is backwards. Venus rotates backwards. It has a tilt of 177 degrees, and so they've drawn it here as a retrograde rotation. But you could also view it as a right-hand rotation flipped almost perfectly upside down. That's why we call it a 177-degree tilt. Earth, of course, is a, in round numbers. They've, they've rounded the nearest integer. This is the 23-degree tilt, or 23-and-a-half-degree tilt. That's the obliquity of the ecliptic. Mars has a tilt of 25 degrees. Jupiter is three degrees, almost back to straight up and down. Saturn's got a 27-degree tilt. It's kind of big. Uranus, 
Uranus is laid over on its side. It's got a 98-degree tilt, so its north pole is actually, actually poking below these, its orbital plane, and Neptune is tilted by 30 degrees. So with the actual exceptions of Uranus, which is laid over on its side, and Venus, which has been flipped upside down, all the other planets share this general right-hand sense of rotation. And these oddities d demand explanation, and I'll be perfectly frank with you, we don't have a good explanation. But they stand out as exceptions. Only two of the eight are doing something strange. The rest are tilted somewhat. Yes, ma'am? How do we know that it's upside down? Ah, the question is, how do I know that this thing is upside down? I, I could just as easily say it's rotating in a left-hand or retrograde sense. But what I do to, a, what I do to have a self-consistent way of describing which way an axis is pointed is I adopt my description of a right-hand rule. And when I adopt a right-hand rule, to, orbit to rotate backwards is tantamount to flipping that axis upside down. So it's purely a convention that I adopt to say, OK, I'm going to describe it the same way for everybody, adopt a right-hand rule. If I adopted a left-hand rule, then, well, I'd have everyone rotating backwards and this is right side up. You know, it's, just, it's a matter of choice. It's a good question. Why do we choose this? We often do this as a way of, of making certain the language is consistent. So when I apply it from one thing to another, I don't have to make up a brand new rule. I just got one to remember. So those are, those are clues to what's going on in the formation of the solar system from the motions of the planets, from the orbital motions, from the rotation. There's sort of this memory of this general sort of right-hand sense of rotation. But there's other clues as well. And these clues can be found in the compositions of the individual planets. If I look at the inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and the asteroids, the rocky bodies, I find they all share a fairly common composition. They're all small. They're the size of the Earth or less. The Earth is the biggest of the terrestrial inner bodies. And they're rocky. They're made of silicates and iron. So whenever I describe a body as rocky, I'm going to basically mean that it's made primarily of silicates with some mixture of iron inside of them. But what also is not so much what's notable for what they have is also what they lack. They lack very, very, they have either few or no volatiles. Volatiles meaning things like gases and ices. You say, well, wait a minute. You know, the Earth has big oceans. The Earth has an atmosphere. It's only a small fraction of the mass of the Earth. Okay, even though it's very important to us, it really is a very thin outer layer along the large, rocky body of the Earth. Asteroids are completely devoid of most um, gases and appear to have very, very little content of ices. But more dramatically, they almost completely lack hydrogen and helium. There's no hydrogen and helium on them at all. They're too small to have retained the hydrogen and helium, but they probably never really had it to begin with. The Jovian planets couldn't be more different. Their interiors have very large rock and ice cores, as we'll learn in subsequent lectures. But what really stands out is their hydrogen and helium content. Their atmospheres are extremely rich in hydrogen, and they're extremely rich in volatiles. Methane, ammonia, water vapor, carbon dioxide, all the really heavy stuff, but in huge abundances. So much hydrogen carbon dioxide that most of their mass, in the case of, for example, Jupiter and Saturn, are composed of these compounds. Whereas on the Earth, things like water and carbon dioxide are just fractions of the mass of the Earth. In fact, if you took the Jupiter apart and you looked at its entire assay of contents and did the same thing for Saturn, you would find that the composition of Jupiter and Saturn more resemble the composition of the Sun than they require, resemble anything else in the solar system. Finally, when we move to the outermost portions of the solar system, when we get past the last of the gas giants, Jupiter, and Jupiter, 
Neptune and get past the orbit of Neptune into the outer solar system, we find only small bodies left. The biggest thing out there is Pluto and Eris, and those are only about 2,400 kilometers across. Those things are smaller than the moon. But furthermore, they don't have a lot of rock in them. They're mostly ice and rock mixtures with mostly ice, and the volatiles that are in the gases in the Jovian planets are frozen solid. So, for example, the surface of Pluto, or the surface of Eris, the two of the dwarf planets that are the largest of the trans-Neptunian objects, actually have on their surfaces methane ice and ammonia ices, methane ice in particular. They don't have necessarily water ice. Water is there, and it's an ice, but methane, which is normally a gas here, is an ice on those outer worlds. So as I move from the inner part of the solar system to the outer part, I see lots of rock and gas, or lots of rock and, and iron, very little gas, very little uh, volatiles. When I get to the Jovian planets, gases and volatiles dominate on top of large rock and ice cores. And then when I get to the outer solar system, all I'm left with is rock and ice, and the volatiles are frozen on the surface, but there's teeny tiny amounts of it. So there's real clues here as to where materials are, what, whether they're rock or volatiles or gas like hydrogen helium, and how much of it there is. There's a huge amount of mass in the Jovian planets. In fact, most of the residual mass of the solar system is in the Jovian planets, only a tiny bit in the inner solar system, and an even smaller amount in the outer solar system. The outer solar system, if I gathered up all the ice balls, all the comets, all the stuff, I could barely make up a fraction of the mass of the Earth. So what's going on here? What is this trying to tell us? Well, here again is a picture to sort of you know, cement this idea down. The rocky planets are small. Right? Their total mass barely adds up to a little over two Earth masses. And yet Jupiter itself is 318 Earth masses, nearly 100 Earth masses for Saturn, and then 17 and 15 Earth masses each for Uranus and Neptune. So there's a huge amount of mass and gas, mostly hydrogen, helium, and ices, but somehow in the inner solar system, all I got's rock. And not very much of that as well. So what's going on here? What, why did this state of affairs come into being? Well, to get some idea of what's going on, we have to understand something about how the sun formed. We, we, can't, we couldn't, cannot go back 4.6 billion years in the past and watch the sun form. But we live in a galaxy full of two, 200 billion stars. And so we can actually see stars the size of the sun forming right now. And we can peer through the gas clouds they're being born in. And we can piece together what that formation process is like. The analogy I like to use is, let's face it, a, a typical oak tree or a hardwood tree in a forest in Ohio has a lifetime that can be measured in 100, 200, sometimes even three or 400 years. So there's no way, you think, you could actually learn anything about the life cycle of an oak tree. But you can. You can spend an afternoon in a forest and you can piece together the entire life cycle of an oak tree. Because you can see old trees, young trees, saplings, acorns just falling off. You can see trees at all stages of their development. And in the course of one afternoon, piece together a life cycle that lasts centuries. So true it is with stars. Yeah, it's true. The life cycle of a star like the sun lasts something like 10, 12 billion years. But we live in a galaxy full of so many stars that we can see stars in all levels of their formation. And in the course of, well, not an afternoon, but say, oh, about four or five weeks in Astronomy 162, or in the last century, we've been able to piece together very well the story of both star formation, stellar evolution, and stellar death. We're concerned with stellar formation. Stars form out of raw material that's made of hydrogen helium, which is the primary constituent of interstellar gas. The space between the stars is not empty. There is gas out there. And every now and then, there are very large, cold, um, clouds of gas that live in interstellar space, they're called giant molecular clouds. 
Now, in very quick to tell the story, giant cold clouds of molecular gas are basically molecular hydrogen. The hydrogen is so cold that it forms into the H2 molecule as the primary form of this cloud. And it also contains some fine particulate material we refer to generically as dust. Dust probably resembles mostly carbon and silicate type materials. It's probably got the consistency of like really, really fine carbon soot or smog soot like you might find at the back of a, a tailpipe of a car. This actually floats around in interstellar space. The gas to dust ratio is about 100 to 1, so it's mostly gas. These clouds are really big and they have a lot of self-gravity, but they're barely able to hold themselves up against that gravity by their internal pressure. The slightest sneeze or twitch in one direction, gravity can take over from the internal pressure and cause the cloud to collapse under its own weight. As the cloud collapses, it busts into fragments. Each of these fragments is dense, and it begins to collapse further. So the cloud may be actually thousands of times the mass of the sun, will break into star-sized clumps. Each of these star-sized clumps rapidly collapses along its poles, but because it's slightly rotating, kind of like that skater trick, there's a little bit of centrifugal force. So along the equator of the cloud, there's a little bit of centrifugal force holding off the collapse, but there's no such force along the poles, and so you get this very rapid pancaking collapse in which the cloud basically literally deflates along its poles and slowly contracts in along its equator. And the result is that you collapse from a round cloud, which is slowly rotating, into a rapidly spinning disk. The rapid spin-up comes from the fact that it may be slowly rotating, but as it collapses, it does like a skater, and it speeds up and spins around. So the result is that the central the whole thing pancakes into a disk. But the densest part is the kernel, the, the, the mass of a material right at the middle of that we call the central core. That central core collapses very rapidly. As it collapses, it begins to compress and heat up. As it begins to heat up, the interior temperature of this thing begins to rise, that it actually begins to emit radiation due to gravitational energy release, and we call it a protostar. Eventually, the, energy, the temperature inside will reach about 12, 15 million degrees Kelvin, at that temperature, hydrogen fusion into helium can ignite, and the star will become a self-sustaining object. Okay, that's basically four weeks of astronomy 162 in four minutes. So a simple cartoon, you start out with a low, thin, rotating cloud of gas. You can see the axis here drawn. The cloud's kind of big and fuzzy and gray in this picture. And then it starts to collapse, and as it collapses, it heats up and pancakes, and the center forms into a star. This whole process is fairly rapid. It occurs over the course of a few hundred thousand years, forming eventually a protostar, or in the case of the sun, the protosun would have been in the middle, mass about the mass of the sun, not quite hydrogen burning, not quite ready to sort of alight onto the, into its lifetime as a steady hydrogen burning star, but surrounded by a rotating disk of gas and other debris. The material that doesn't go into the star ends up in this surrounding disk. And we call this disk, in the case of the sun, the solar nebula. Here's an artist's conception of what the sun may have looked like early in its formation. This is the proto-sun on its way to becoming a full-fledged star. And surrounding it is an immense disk of gas and other junk. And the artist, of course, has gotten a little crazy here and started showing this gunk beginning to coagulate into protoplanetary material. So we get into the structure we call the primordial solar nebula. 
If we go back and say, well, what should the primordial solar neighborhood's composition been? The answer is, look at the sun. Because all you're looking at is, imagine if you wanted to know what a house was composed of, look at the debris, the construction debris that's left around the construction site. You may not be able to go into the house, but you can tell, you know, wood, metal, plastic, things like that, in about the right proportions. If a lot of wood went into the house, there's going to be a lot of construction debris from wood. If a little bit of plastic went in, you're only going to get a little bit of plastic in the junk pile. Same is true of a primordial solar nebula. A lot of the mass goes into the star, but about half the mass or less, depending upon this, depending on the formation process exactly, goes into the surrounding disks. The sun in the center is just basically peeled off and it's, got its, own, it's going its own way under gravity, lighting off into a star. And you end up with the raw materials left over from that formation forming into a disk. The composition of the sun is about 75% helium and about 25, 75% hydrogen and 25% helium. The leftovers, or traces of a fraction of a percent, are metals. Metals, into an astronomer, is everything that's heavier than hydrogen and helium. So carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, all that good stuff, are all called metals in, in the astronomy lingo. And some of those dust grains, some of those little fine grains of carbon and, and silicon soot, and iron soot, that actually were in the original, in the original molecular cloud. Now this whole structure starts out when you finally pancake down with a temperature of about 2,000 degrees. That's not a whole lot cooler than the star at the center. The, the proto-sun probably has a temperature sitting in around three, 4,000 degrees Kelvin when it reaches the stage. It's surrounded by a very, very hot disk. But that, unlike the sun, which is able to tap gravitational energy to provide for its, its heat, the disk has no source of heat. It's already collapsed. It's stopped its contraction. And that means if it's hotter than surrounding space, it's going to cool off by radiating infrared radiation. We see these things as bright infrared shining disks around nearby protostars. Starting out at a temperature of around 2,000 degrees, it's too cold for nuclear fusion or any fun stuff to go on. And so it just simply cools. Now as it cools down, different materials are going to start to condense out of the hot gas into solid phases depending upon their individual condensation temperatures. Again, sort of to give you an example of that, in the Earth's atmosphere, right, at normal temperatures, water is a liquid or a vapor. So if the atmosphere got really, really hot, really, really hot, all the air, all the, like in the middle of summer, for example, a lot of the water in the air is in the form of water vapor. As it cools down, as night comes along, what happens? Well, eventually the temperature drops below the point that all that water vapor that was making the day so humid, when the night becomes cool, what happens? That water vapor begins to condense out of the air, and you find your car covered with thin beads of water. So, that's, so there's, a, there's a condensation temperature associated with water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere. The same is true for any material in a gaseous state. There's always going to be a temperature below which that material no longer stays a gas, but beforms, begins to form a liquid or a solid form. If you're in the vacuum of space, you very rarely, if ever, form a liquid, and you go from gas to directly to solid. So this kind of condensation from gas phase to solid phase occurs at different temperatures for different materials. And that temperature at which that transition occurs is called the condensation temperature. Now here's some examples of what various condensation temperatures are like. Instead of listing the materials and their individual temperatures, what I've done is I've sorted them in order of decreasing temperature of condensation. And this sort of mimics the cooling of the solar nebula. So we start out with the solar nebula, primordial solar nebula, 
at a temperature of a bigger than 2,000 degrees Kelvin. Above 2,000 degrees Kelvin, every single element and molecule we know of stays a gas, stays a vapor. And so as long as the temperature in the primordial solar nebula is above 2,000 degrees, everything stays gaseous. All the hydrogen, all the helium, the methane, the ammonia, the water, the little bits of iron and silicon, they all sort of stay in a general gas phase. When the temperature drops to 1,600 degrees, we reach the condensation temperature of metals like aluminum, titanium, and calcium. And so what I expect is that these are going to actually form into molecules built up from mineral oxides. The titanium and aluminum and calcium, it's cool enough for them to grab an oxygen if there's any oxygen nearby, and form oxide minerals. Very tiny grains, but mineral grains nonetheless. When the temperature drops to 1,400 degrees, we reach the condensation temperature of iron and nickel. Iron and nickel is fairly abundant, and these form metal grains. They form little sort of grainy bits, kind of like light grains of sand, composed mostly of iron and nickel. There's a lot of other stuff around, but because the iron and nickel condenses out at a higher temperature than that stuff, all the silicon and carbon and the hydrogen and helium stay a gas, and the iron and nickel condense out in the metal grains. At 1300 Kelvin, silicon begins to condense out, and it forms silicates, silicate grains, little crystals of silicon oxygen compounds and so forth. So I go from purely gaseous, the heavy metals, aluminum, titanium, and calcium fall out, then iron and nickel condense out and solidify, or form into tiny grains. They don't, they don't form big lumps, they form little tiny lumps. Then silicate grains begin to condense out of the, out of the nebula. And then I have to wait a while. So you notice that by the time I get down below 1300 Kelvin, I've condensed out metals and silicates, silicon and iron, primarily and by abundance. <laughs> then I have to go a long way. So from 2000 to 1300 is not a big ways, but then I have to jump 1000 degrees. I have to get down to room temperature, to carbon. And now carbon, which is the, one of the most abundant of the metals, light metals, now it begins to condense out. And I get carbonaceous grains, carbon-bearing grains. So at 300 degrees Kelvin, this is why, for example, in the Earth's atmosphere, if you flash carbon into a gas, oh, say, in an internal combustion engine, then one of the things that will happen is when that hot gas of carbon, you know, gaseous carbon, hits the cool atmosphere of the Earth, what does it do? It flashes into fine carbon soot. It condenses out as a solid. Same thing happens in the solar nebula. When the temperature of the solar nebula drops to 300 Kelvin, carbon soot begins to rain out of the gas. And finally, when you get down to between 300 and 100 degrees Kelvin, now we're talking about down to 200 degrees below zero, really cold, hydrogen and nitrogen type compounds begin to condense out. And they condense out in the form of water ice, dry ice, carbon dioxide ice, and an introduction to chemistry, methane, I'm sorry, ammonia, NH3, and methane, CH4. We don't do too much chemistry in this class, but H2O water, CO2 carbon dioxide, NH3 ammonia, and CH4 methane are the most common molecules we're going to see in the solar system. So I'm going to use that shorthand, although I'll use their names when I say them. So you have to get really cold, below the freezing point of water, then carbon dioxide, then ammonia, then methane, kind of in that order. So by the time you get down to 100 degrees Kelvin, these are all volatiles, right? Water is a volatile. It's continually changing in our atmosphere between liquid and solid and gas. 
Carbon dioxide is always a gas in our atmosphere, but if we go to Mars, carbon dioxide forms an ice at the poles. Ammonia and methane are always gases in our atmosphere, but you go into the outer solar system like Pluto and Eris, they're ices. So these are the volatiles. These are the carbons, the silicates, the metals, primarily iron. Hmm, where have we seen that? Metals and silicate, and then carbonates and lots of ices. We see exactly that pattern as I go from the inside to the outside of the solar system. So what we're seeing is the pattern of change of composition is reflecting change of is the rate of condensation from the inside out in the solar system. And this brings up something we call the frost line. Rock and metals is going to condense out anywhere that the nebulous temperature drops below 1300 degrees Kelvin. But you're only going to get carbon grains and ices when the gas is cooler than 300 Kelvin, cooler than about room temperature. This allows us to define something we call the frost line. The frost line is the line, between, line beyond which carbon and the volatiles begin to flash out of the gas into ices. Now in the inner solar system, within basically from the sun out to about one and a half, two, three astronomical units, it's too, it never basically gets cold enough for carbon and ices because it's too close to the sun. It's too close a proximity to that protostar there. So the temperature never drops below 300 Kelvin. So it's just too hot for the ices and carbon grains. So the only stuff that can condense out is the silicates and the iron. However, in the outer solar system, far away from the sun, sort of four astronomical units or so and beyond, it can, it's far enough away from the sun that solar heating allows the temperature, is small enough to allow the temperature to drop below 300 Kelvin, and you begin to get the condensation of carbon grains and ices. And we call this dividing line between where inside it's too hot for carbon and ices, and beyond it's cold enough for carbon and ices, we call the frost line. Just like in the Earth's atmosphere, it has to get below a certain temperature for water vapor to form frost on your car, rather than just simply a layer of dew. So we can have in the solar system, in the solar nebula, there is a frost line beyond which it gets cold enough because it's far enough away from the sun that we actually begin to form ices. And this gives us now a dividing line in composition. As I move outwards, close to the sun, I'm only going to find silicates and iron. Far from the sun, I'm going to augment those silicates and iron with carbon, which is very, very abundant, and ices, which because they're made out of hydrogen compounds for the most part, H2O, NH3, CH4, are going to be extremely abundant. So let's actually go through the process. The condensation does not condense out lumps, big lumps. It condenses out little tiny, tiny fine grains, no more than a millionth of a meter or more in size. They're just little tiny little bits of, of, of fluff. But that fluff has got a whole bunch of stuff, and it's moving around the disk, and they're all kind of moving around together. So even though the orbital speed is pretty quick, you're not moving all that much faster than your neighbor. It's like traffic on the freeway. If everything's going okay, you're move you may be moving at 70, 80 miles an hour down the freeway, but so is everybody else. As the relative speed of you and the other cars is much smaller than your bulk speed. So this means that even though the grains are moving fairly fast, they're kind of drifting around. Every now and then they bump into another grain. And those grain surfaces are slightly sticky. And every now and then they stick together and they have these low velocity collisions that begin to allow the grains to stick together. If you're out beyond the frost line, 
those grains that originally, the silicate and iron and all those little metal grains that condensed out of the nebula when it was still hot, now suddenly become condensation points for those ices to form on, little, nu- little grains to nucleate on, just like snowflakes form on little grains of soot in the upper atmosphere. Water condenses on them and forms flakes of snow. That's why, we don't, that's why when it snows, very rarely is it ice literally falling out of the sky. That happens. But normally you get a condensation process. Well, the condensation means that you get these little metal grains, these little silicate grains, now coated with a little layer of ice. And of course, all of us have lived in cold enough climates, we know that those ice grains are very sticky. They can stick together and they can grow very, very rapidly. So when you're beyond the frost line and you're allowed to grow condensed ices, you're going to get very, very rapid growth, just like a snowball or a snowflake or a clump of snow growing as it falls down through a snowy sky. Whereas in the warm places, all you get are the small bits of silicon, and so they grow a little bit more slowly, and they don't grow as big. Now, this growth occurs without gravitation to help you. It's simply material forces of stuff sticking to other like stuff. But after a while, after a few thousand years of that non-gravitational process, you begin to grow boulder-sized lumps and eventually bigger-sized lumps. Just like a snowball rolling down a hill, it begins to collect up and grow material and size. We call these small little chunks of stuff planetesimals. They're not planets, but they're the raw chunks of material that will be used to build planets. And this process, again, as I emphasize, is non-gravitational. It's just simply material sticking to other material. But of course, just like a snowball rolling down a hill, as it rolls up more snow, it it has less material available for the next one to grow. And you can grow these things bigger and bigger until eventually they start having an appreciable gravity. And this occurs when the objects start getting to be about a kilometer in size, when you go from the size of a boulder to the size of a few city blocks. Once you get up to that size, they start having their own gravity. It's really weak at this point, but it's gravity nonetheless. And this gravity actually begins to assist in the aggregation. Before, when their gravity was too weak, they could only grab the things they exactly ran into. But when you have appreciable gravity, you can start reaching out with the gravity and grabbing and pulling other things into you that you would not be able to hit directly. And of course, as you do that, your mass grows. As your mass grows, your gravity gets stronger. As your gravity gets stronger, your reach gets bigger. And you can see the process literally snowballs. It's a runaway process. And it can occur very, very rapidly. So as soon as the gravity begins to pull up, you start getting some interesting effects. One is you start beginning to clear the region around you of little grains. But then you go to the size that your gravity, you're a big chunk of mass. And there's another planetesimal over there, and it's a big chunk of mass too. And as Newton said, mass attracts mass. So now you have big things attracting other big things, and they have strong gravity fields between them. And now planetesimals start to drift together and collide slowly and begin to build up. So now it's not just simply planetesimals growing, grabbing nearby grains, but now they're big enough they can start reaching out and grabbing smaller planetesimals. As they grow bigger, they start grabbing bigger planetesimals. So now instead of having a single snowball rolling down the hill, We have a couple of snowballs rolling down the hill, but then the snowballs, some of the snowballs coalesce into an even bigger snowball and start grabbing more of the snowballs around them. And you start getting a very rapid acceleration and growth into protoplanets. So once you form these planetesimals, and once they get big enough that gravity starts playing a role, you get a very rapid acceleration and growth. So you start out non-gravitational with just sticky forces, 
And you, when you add gravity, when the mass gets big enough, the whole system begins to run away, and you get extremely rapid growth over the course of a few thousand years. So you start out as little tiny grains. They grow into sort of grain globs. These globs start growing into rocks, which can collide. And the whole system begins to show a very smooth solar nebula here in this cartoon. The solar nebula begins to fragment into clumps, and then the big clumps get bigger, and the small clumps get exploited and sucked up. Okay, so it's sort of a rich gets richer kind of thing. The more mass you got, the more gravity you got, the more you can grab onto your neighbors and make them be part of you. And once they're part of your, your mass, your mass gets bigger. So the bigger get bigger, and the smaller just get eaten up because they don't have enough gravity to play, do anything but play the role of stuff to become part of a bigger thing. Now, as we grow into protoplanets, what kind of planet they're going to grow into depends upon what kind of stuff you have available in your neighborhood to grow from. So if you're a terrestrial planet, you're in below the frost line. You're inside the part of the solar nebula that's too hot for ices. So you collide to form small rocky bodies, but you're not going to have any ices because the ices are still out in the gas phase. You might trap a little bit inside of you, but not too much. It's just too hot in there. First of all, these inner protoplanets are small. There isn't enough raw material because you're building yourself up out of iron and silicates, which are minority constituents of the solar nebula. The solar nebula, remember, is 75% hydrogen and 25% helium. But you're trying to build yourself up out of the fraction of a percent of stuff that's left over heavier than hydrogen and helium. So you don't grow very big because there isn't enough stuff to grow out of. Because they stay small, their gravity stays small, and it's still hot, they can't hang on to hydrogen and helium gas. Even though they're just saturated with hydrogen and helium gas around them, their gravity's too weak to hang on to it because the atom's speeds are bigger than their escape speed. So they simply never grab onto it. And if that wasn't bad enough, the sun is lighting up. And as the sun lights up, solar radiation and a steady wind of particles coming off of the proto-sun begins to push along the hydrogen and begins to literally sweep away and blow away the gas in your surroundings. So you're too slow to hang on to it, and what stuff you are able to hang on to it, the sun is busily blowing away. And so the combination of that is, once you finally build up, what you end up with is a rocky rock, a big round rock, with no hydrogen, no helium, and very, very little ices or volatiles. Because it's too warm for those ices or volatiles to condense onto your surface, and what little gas there is there for you to grab onto, the sun is blowing away. So what do you get? Well, you get something that looks an awful lot like a terrestrial planet. Silicates, iron, very little volatiles, no hydrogen helium. Okay, so that's how we form the terrestrial planets. They're too close to the sun, it's too hot, you don't get volatiles, the ice is condensing out, they can't hang on to hydrogen and helium. So we get a little picture like this. They're in a relatively gas-free environment because it's being blown away. You collect up all the rocks around you and you're sort of this big molten ball of gunk, mostly silicon and iron. As that silicon and iron starts out all mixed together, but because it's molten, the iron sinks to the center, the silicates float to the top, and I get a beautifully differentiated iron core with a silicon mantle. Now the Jovians, ah, they're different. They grow beyond the frost line. Out there, 
Now you can get a hold of ices, which means you can begin tapping into the vast reservoirs of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen that are around you in the gas phase, because when they form molecules, those molecules flash into ices below 300 degrees Kelvin. So now, in addition to all the rock and silicate out there, you can begin to grab some ices. And the ices augment and accelerate the growth tremendously. So whereas the Earth can only build up about an Earth worth of iron and silicon, Jupiter and Saturn built up cores with 10 to 15 times the mass of the Earth in rock and ices. And Uranus and Neptune have one to two Earth mass rock and ice cores sitting deep inside of them. Once your gravity gets this big and the gas around you is cold and slow moving, it now can begin to suck up and hoover up some of that hydrogen and helium from the solar nebula. As you grow a gigantic gas envelope, your mass grows as your mass grows, your gravity grows, and your reach to reach out and hoover up the stuff grows very rapidly. In fact, the planets with the biggest cores, Jupiter, they're literally gravitational hoovers. They suck up every bit of hydrogen and stuff around them. They just devour it. And Jupiter grew very rapidly to 320 times the mass of the Earth. The largest gas giants, however, don't just suck stuff up. They can also begin to gravitationally fling rocks out of their way. They're the 800-pound gorillas of the solar system. They want to eat everything, but they eat everything so sloppily that half the stuff they eat, the other half gets thrown around. So they begin to scatter rock out of the region. They begin to clear the debris out of the solar system. So they have not only the effect of gathering everything up, but they scatter stuff around pushing raw debris into the outer parts of the solar system. And so here is, for example, a proto-Jupiter literally hoovering up its surroundings, grabbing just about everything in its, in its path, growing to immense size. In fact, we see Jupiter-sized planets up to 10 times the mass of Jupiter around other stars. So the process is remarkably efficient. What about the moons and the asteroids? Well, as these Jupiter Proto-Jupiter begins to gather stuff around it, eventually it forms its own little mini solar nebula around it. It forms its own little rotating disk of gas and junk. The rocky and icy moons that we see around those planets form co-rotating, co-orbiting little systems, little miniature models of the solar nebula. Later moons get added because their big gravity allows them to capture nearby passing asteroids and comets and augments their planetary systems. So other moon systems. So we'll see Jupiter have 20 moons without even skipping a beat. Asteroids, the gravity due to the proto-Jupiter keeps the region between Mars and Jupiter so stirred up that those planetesimals can never form into a planet or the collisions are so violent it busts everything up. And so you never get to aggregate into a larger body. And what you're left with is this belt of raw construction debris in this place between there because Jupiter kept it too stirred up. So the asteroids are really made up of the leftover rocky planetesimals that if there was no Jupiter may have formed into a little tiny planet, but Jupiter never gave it a chance. Not only was it keeping it stirred up, but it was flipping stuff out of orbits, in fact, even full all the way out of the solar system, just left and right. And so the stuff never grew, and you're left with the leftover materials for us to study in the present day. At the outer part of the solar system, the nebula's thinning out. You're running out of material. Ices condense out, but there's never enough to be able to grow very large. So you stay small because there isn't much stuff to grow with. 
there's no, not really much disturbance out there except from the orbit of Neptune. So Neptune will scatter and gather all that material into an outer belt called the Kuiper Belt. And so the outer solar system is the leftover material assisted by Neptune. You can form a few big Kuiper Belt objects stirring it up, but for the most part, you get a dispersal. So whereas Jupiter made the asteroid belt out of leftover silicates, Neptune made the Kuiper belt out of the leftover icy bits. And so we get a debris of material at the very outside of the solar system. The whole process I just described takes about 100 million years, but this leftover rock and ice, which has, takes about a billion years to clear out, and it bombards the surfaces of all the planets relentlessly for that first billion years of the solar system's history. So we'll be looking for evidence of an epoch of heavy bombardment. The sunlight steadily disperses and blows away the material, clearing out the interplanetary space, and we see the solar system as we see today emerge. So within the solar system today and its composition and motion is a memory of its formation history. And we'll see that story written as we explore the solar system. See you all tomorrow.